Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once-a-month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the impact collaborative. Again, that's info at real hyphen leaders.com. Enjoy the show. On the road, here we go now in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is the founder and CEO of the Four Earth app. Please welcome Gold Dar Hood. Gold, how are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. Well, thanks for being here. Now, first question is this, the Four Earth app. Kind of walk our audience through how one gets to this point in their career where they want to develop an app that can take on some of the world's greatest challenges. Yeah, it's a bit of a circuitous path for me. I actually decided to do this coming from BlackRock. And, you know, I was really looking at the time at the chaos that social media was causing all over the world. And also this problem where people were the product and also the problem that I could see from institutional investors, which is quite frankly, companies should be the products because we didn't have enough data to know how to reward people for doing the right thing. And so for me, I was driven to launch this app because I wanted to solve that problem, to actually productize that data and tackle a fintech problem and a big social problem simultaneously. And I just happened to have the right set of experience, having spent time both in mobile development and in software, as well as in physical solutions and environmental solutions and finance. And so for people listening out there that aren't quite familiar with softwares with how data is collected, how their data is used. Please elaborate uh, on that specific problem for us. Absolutely. So right now, every time that you're using a social media app, if you've seen The Social Dilemma, it's very clear that people really are spying on everything you do. And the goal of that spying is on the one hand to say, what do you like so we can sell it to you? And then a little bit more of a nefarious front, it's to say, how can we influence your behavior to make you a better purchaser? 
And that's really a problem for sustainability because the whole point of marketing was actually supposed to be allowing companies to really ask you as a customer, what do you want and how can I give it to you? And that is the opposite of what gets delivered through today's social media marketing. What gets delivered is you as a purchaser, independent of what you want. It actually creates that need within you that you didn't necessarily have. And that's not good for the environment. There's tons of money to be made in doing the right thing, but it's not how our communication channel is set up. And I believe that you should be able to have a right to your own data and a right to your privacy when you're online. And so the space that we've created completely safeguards that. We don't sell any data on people. We literally just sell it on companies and on how they're becoming better and more regenerative and more sustainable. What we do instead is we ask people to voluntarily tell us what they actually want so instead of looking like, man, I, you've Googled uh, or searched for you know, vegan three times in your local area, maybe we should show you some vegan ads. What we do is we just ask, what are your dietary preferences? Is it important to you to buy from a company that participates in circular economy practices or to buy from a company that is local? And so we're helping you find a company that really fulfills a genuine want that you have and a type of commerce that you want to support. And in return, that means that we're providing higher customer lifetime value individuals to companies to help the ones that really want to fulfill those good, sustainable needs to grow. Amazing. And, and so how before we go into the how of how this app works, how I interact with it, let's 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 still focus on the why, you know, you're at BlackRock and you're experiencing, you know, how organizations are using this data and how they're mobilizing you're working with softwares um what made you want to take this leap to start developing and how difficult of a challenge was that to find that product fit yeah so there was a very interesting issue where it was quite clear from the metrics that we have right now to assess sustainability that there are some good organizations that are doing some good work to try and categorize the space like B Corp, gotta love B Corp. Um, but even in those cases, it was really difficult for someone at an investment level to gain comparable data to say who is making an improvement. And that's a really important question to answer because an investor doesn't make a decision you know, on whether or not a company is a good investment based on the last 10 years of performance. They make it based on the last year, right? And so if what you want is not just, has this company always had a good reputation for finance, for sustainability, but really, are they currently in an upswing that's going to get rewarded in the marketplace, or are they currently on a downswing? And that is important to find out the answer to because it also helps curate who in management gets rewarded from making good operational decisions for sustainability. So this whole application was really designed backwards from if we need that data inside a company, what does that look like? And what I did is I said, well, why aren't good companies being rewarded right now? And what stops a company from even wanting to improve? So for example, if you look at something like Nike, they clearly got a lot of criticism back um, a few years ago about issues with child labor in their supply chains, very merited criticism. And they did respond and they actually really started to, to try and make improvements. But what they found is that the time it took them to make those improvements, when they came back and they told the public, hey, we think we fixed this problem. Are you happy with this? They didn't see their stock price go up. 
they saw people actually kind of get upset again. <laughs> and it turns out that what happens is that the people who really cared in the first place, they've stopped listening. The people who didn't really care all of a sudden got reminded that you had a problem in the first place. And that makes it a little difficult for companies that need to improve to actually make those improvements in a way that gets rewarded in a stakeholder-driven capitalist marketplace. And that is an important problem to fix. And so when I sat down to design the software, I did it with that macroeconomic incentive in mind. How do we fundamentally reward a company for doing the right thing over a long period of time that it really takes to make real improvements? And the way that that works is by channeling people's dissatisfaction instead of like on normal social media where someone might say, I had a bad experience, and then 50 other people take that bad experience and internalize it and create a network effect that's bad PR for a company. All of that feedback is private, but directly to us. And we ask for the why. We ask for, you know, what article did you read that made you think that there was a problem? And then we're aggregating that information to say, how many people share the same concern? And does it come from the same source or different sources? And that way we can package it up and take it to experts within our ecosystem who say, is this a real problem? And if it is, how does that company fix it? And then we give it back to the company. And if the company actually addresses that problem, we communicate it directly back to the people who were concerned in the first place to say they've listened and here is what they did. And that is a radically different approach to that stakeholder engagement that is currently not available anywhere in the world today for a company to work with, but it also creates that very valuable data for the companies from the investor perspective, which is when you know for a fact, because we as a platform have told you, your stakeholders, this many of them have this issue and it's fixable by this, and that's actually prioritizable for you as an organization, do you listen? Mm. Do you actually implement those changes if they have been both driven by a significant number of your own stakeholders and vetted by experts as being achievable and impactful for your sustainability, for your environmental impact, et cetera. And that is a really cool set of data. And just like any platform, there's going to be iterations you go through. Like, tell us about the original concept and kind of the, the most challenging hurdle or the biggest change you had to make and, or, or, you know, um, a revelation that came through all of these, uh, you know, obstacles that got in the way. Yeah. So when I originally designed this, I knew what data streams that I wanted and I knew how I thought that people would want to engage, but what people really didn't believe was that people would voluntarily watch ads. <laughs> um, and I had a few great examples of this being done previously that were a hit and uh, not to, to be a direct drum roll ironic, but one of the names of them was Hit Bliss. And it was the service that allowed people to trade their time for credits that could be spent buying TV shows and movie access. And eventually they partnered with Amazon. Um, it was so successful, in fact, that people were completely willing to do this, that their issue is that people tried to exploit the system and write little scripts and things to just watch without engaging. Mm. But their system was passive and it was very susceptible to this. And it was also driven by personal benefit. And so what I said is if we design the system where, you know, and this is how the app works, every second that you watch an ad, you get to see how much money is being spent and you get to direct 80% of that to environmental impact and to sustainability education that you choose. 
And those are metrics that are linked to your profile. I have cleaned this many cubic feet of air. I have saved this many you know, species of bird because of the time that I've spent today. And I was like that philanthropic aspect, plus being able to support businesses that truly align with your values and making every single engagement interactive will make it so that people will be even more engaged than they were for self-benefit, but they'll also have incentive to give real answers. <laughs> and it will be incredibly difficult for them to, to gamify the system because of that interactivity and the personalization components. And people really didn't believe that. And I had to go and prove it. And now the irony is it's so successful. People really do love that, that 90% of the time that someone logs into the app, they intentionally go to watch ads during mm -hmm. that session. That is something they really want to do, which means it's our job to make sure that every time someone logs on, that there are advertisers that want to reach them because it's so psychologically empowering for someone to actually go to the app and say, I can accumulate this money for this cause that I care about. It's demotivating for them to log on and not have access to that, but have access to things like our social sections. And so in our evolution of the app, we uh, pivoted to be able to add on a whole EdTech expansion and to add on additional social features that even when they've run out of content that they can generate that sort of external impact that there's still ways for them to interact um, that are meaningful for their direct lives. And so that's what we're doing now when we'll be releasing out an ed tech section. The plan is for this fall to about 75,000 schools. And that gives people a whole other set of activity that they can do on the platform in addition to the monetization section. So it's a really ironic example of like success than breeding its own problem uh, because, you know, if a hundred million people want to log on and see an ad it's not something advertisers are used to do to like pre-buy space for something to then have the people come um and so it's it's interesting to try and pull everybody together at the same time same place <laughs> oh i'm sure it is and, and that was actually going to be my next question is you know with any platform you know whether it's um like let's just say with the, the dating apps right like you need to get you know, people on the app first who are good looking within your area or it's Uber, you need to get the drivers in the local area because if there's a lack of drivers, it's going to be a bad experience with surcharges for you know, the consumer. What was the most difficult side of your platform to get on? Was it the companies or is it, has it been the, the demand? Yeah, so it's timing the companies correctly. So right now we have a very large set of companies that basically says, as soon as there are just people sitting and waiting and requesting my content, then we will happily um, go ahead and advertise. But um, you know, as I noted on the motivating versus demotivating, if the day someone logs onto the app, there are people that want to reach them that result in three to five minutes worth of content for the day for them in the advertising space, the likelihood that we get them tomorrow is about four times higher than the average for an app in terms of retention, which is fantastic. But if there's no content available for them for like the first few days that they log on, the chances that they'll log on on, you know, day five drop through the floor. And so we have been hesitant to onboard as many of the people as would like to join the application unless we have that interim staging activity. So what we're asking right now is two things. And the biggest challenge has been getting companies to get past their mentality of how they buy social media and get on board with the understanding that this is way more valuable to them to buy per engagement. When you buy on Facebook, you are paying to scream into the darkness. 
same on Instagram or many of these other platforms. You basically pay and say, you know, I want to show this to, you know, a few thousand people or a few million people, whatever your target is. And what happens is anytime somebody flips by at the speed of a rushed finger on Instagram, that counts as a view, right? You have no idea if they've actually engaged. And your metric for knowing if your campaign was successful is engagements on the platform in the form of emotes and in the form of comments. But on Ads for Earth, the only thing you pay for as an advertiser is the actual seconds that you spend actively engaging your precise ideal audience. So if you only want to speak to vegan um, pet owners that have both one dog and one cat and um, live in a house, not an apartment, in five specific zip codes in Vermont, you will only ever pay to speak to those exact people. And you can launch right in with, have you ever considered getting a pet bed that is made for both your dog and your cat that's made from vegan fibers? Straight to the point, Mm. exactly what your target demographic is looking for. And you can actually have them answer like, yes, I know a competitor of yours and then make them specify or no, I've never thought about this. And then you can show them an immediate video of why this is perfect for them or whatever that answer is. And it's dynamic that way, truly conversational. And so this is something that we really need advertisers to come in and say, we are going to work with you. We're offering a charter membership program that basically says we want to line up these ads. So when we do a larger re-release to about 100 million people from day one, there is sufficient content for everyone for those first three minutes. And no one will ever be charged a dime unless their perfect audience is on the platform. But with enough of those companies working with us to make that incentivization possible, 80 cents on every dollar, it gets routed to environmental impact. And it can be one of the most impactful then sets of campaigns and truly displace a major market player like Facebook within a period of months. But we kind of need everyone to to take that plunge with us in a timed fashion. It, it makes a lot of sense. I'm also smiling because I didn't know you realized that I lived in Vermont. Um, <laughs> but you know, a, a lot of it makes a lot of sense for an organization, especially like a you know a Nike or a, a company with a large public face, to even just hedge to have something like that to be in touch with that consumer and to get that real legit feedback uh, as well. But you know, back to my question though, has it been harder to get the those companies on board first to make sure that when consumers show up or the app users show up that there are content there or has it been more difficult to get the demand to show up to sit and watch an advertisement what what's your experience been like definitely advertisers Advertisers. um because the people are really ready and waiting and willing Mm -hmm. but our willingness to pull them into the app to sit there and wait for the ads has a couple of day timeout on that. So like very much the challenge is convincing marketers to dispose of their normal purchasing timeline um, where you know they might have a six month sales cycle and then they want to immediately start a campaign to say, plan with us and pick a start date for this campaign that's a few months off. Um, and if people will do that, then yeah, we have a lot of people standing by immediately that really want to make that happen. Our initial market, um, we went out to nonprofits because it's a really easy ask for them. Hey, let your network know that the app exists. You know, you can be one of 50 featured nonprofits at a time on the application. And then every time someone selects you as the donation target and spends a couple of minutes on the app, you're getting dollars in your accounts that get distributed to you. Um, but again, that's obviously the sort of thing where if they 
redirects people to the application and there aren't advertisers there with content that's available, then their supporters get demotivated. So it really is just a challenge of showing advertisers, look, there's zero risk to you to participate in this. Absolutely none. We just need you to commit in advance because every time someone watches a commercial, we need to be able to take X amount of money and put it in that cause. So we can't just leave it running with 100 million people on the application for two months, um, generating that goodwill from any sort of like ancillary content or from, you know, freely sponsored content by us, because that would accrue literally, you know, $160 million in liabilities. Mm. So it's very important to have advertisers do that on like an advance notice schedule similar to how you would like buying spots on, you know, an event or to plan to do a market research assessment, which is a great use of the platform since we're actually cheaper question for question than doing Google surveys and we have branching logic. So even if somebody just wanted to run a market research assessment, but yeah, that's definitely the biggest challenge is just getting people to time the release of those. Hmm. Got it. Got it. And so, you know, you mentioned hundred million users, like, wouldn't that be phenomenal, right? If, if that were to happen and oh, go for it. Well, that's actually what we have lined up. So the, the schools that want to participate is about 75,000 schools. And um, the thing about releasing to them is that it's not the students really so much that we're speaking with, it's their parents. Um, these schools actually get 10% of the donations that are coming off of that donation stream directed to their school. So you on behalf of, you know, a sibling or a niece or a nephew um, could donate to their college or any of the K through 12 as well. Um, we have a tremendous number of schools and network that would be eligible for that program and you can always recommend an additional institution. And that is a very, very strong incentive. And they're also exactly the household purchasers that everybody wants to speak with. And that audience really is 100 million people. And that's precisely why this is not a platform we're scaling slowly. This is a platform with discontinuous jumps. And we really are seeking a large number of advertisers to gear up to say, when those people get on the platform at the start of the academic cycle, we need to be ready for them. Um, and so I'm working with a larger program proposal in public-private partnerships with some governments in Europe and a few other places um, to actually look at uh, working with a essentially a package of about 10,000 companies um, to do advertising on the platform. And that would be, you know, well over a hundred million dollars in like backed revenues that we really could get a jump start on ensuring that there's content available for a very broad spectrum of individuals. And so I want other ambitious CEOs to see that and go, this is an effort we can get behind. It's like, we really can be a part here of changing the game on how we get information, on how we get direction on how to be more sustainable and on dethroning some social media that's caused so much harm. Got it. And, and, you know, it's a fairly straightforward, you know, if I'm a CEO or a CMO, you know, okay, no risk, uh, great research opportunity for me and, you know, an ability to, um, you know, learn more about the customer and create an impact in this world. Um, where do I go to learn more information and, you know, potentially uh, get onto this platform? Yeah, so fourearthapp.com, uh, four with the number four, will take you to our main website. Um, and there's a link on there if you're interested in advertising, and we can set you up talking with someone from the team. 
Um, as soon as we get a little closer in, we do have a fully automated platform where you actually can self onboard and you can see our content creation tool. It's really quite cool and easy in spite of the fact that it is like this fun interactive, you know, thing that you can do with all this fancy branching logic, actually using it is super simple. Um, we have a tutorial video out of assembling and releasing a whole campaign in 10 minutes with like existing collateral. So, um, you know, conversations, happy to have them, especially because a lot of what we're trying to do right now is super mission driven. Um, but also if you hear this a little late and you wait a little longer and there's not a spot available anytime soon, then you'll also be able to just go to the platform and do it directly. Amazing. Amazing. So I'm really, I'm like still curious about the, the life cycle of apps. I'm reading this book called uh, The Cold Start Problem by Andrew Chen, and he talks about five different stages of an app growth. And it seems like your network effect where you're able to get a lot of users on is by going into the schools and then getting the parents on board. Walk me through how you came up with that strategy, why you think it's um, going to be effective. Yeah, so it was very serendipitous. We always intended to do work with education, but we thought that it would happen much later in the strategic plan. And so it was interesting to us after we did our global beta launch and we saw how high the demand was for ads and we saw that motivation factor, we realized this intention that we have to launch mostly with the nonprofits depends on having advertisers move a lot faster than their current sales cycle allows. So we need something else that's well-timed. Um, and one of our advisors made this amazing introduction um, to someone who was doing curriculum planning for Catholic school systems. Um, and another um, wonderful friend of the company made an introduction to EcoSchools, which does fantastic work in certifying schools to have sustainable practices and to teach sustainability. And so what we realized is the same core technology engine that allows us to do interactive ads and interactive social, by the way, as well, also works really well for ed tech um, because it allows us to do little interactive curriculum supplements. And these are simple and easy and we offer them free to schools. So it's a big value add of a freemium ed tech platform. And for sustainability curriculum, you know, all of it's new, right? Like everything is either literally being developed right now or it's been developed within the last couple of years. And so when we spoke with some of these curriculum designers, we said, you know, you're going to want to do improvements to this, right? And see what's working, what's making sense and what isn't. And we're guessing, since I've also worked in education, I was a university faculty member, that it's a bit difficult to get that information individually from teachers and from schools. And it probably takes a long time. Yeah. So, you know, what if we could get you that information in a, you know, dashboard on a day-to-day -day basis to see like how people were interacting with the material and what it meant for them and that you could really use that to do process improvement in the education. Would that be helpful? Of course, the answer was unsurprisingly yes. Um, and so there was a really big incentive for the schools to participate. And then this question around the financing has been interesting because on the one hand, it's great for schools. Schools are always like need cash and need to be able to improve educational opportunities. Um, but also is a little daunting to say, well, please tell me this isn't directed at students. And that answer is unequivocally, no, absolutely not. We want you to work with your existing fundraising mechanisms, the same way that a school club might go out and hand a flyer to a local business and say, 
let us do a, a pizza fundraiser, you can do, but virtually, which is very COVID friendly um, and really evens the playing field in between remote schools and you know physical schools that people can send an electronic flyer to a business that wants to support their community and then send it out through their normal you know PTA channels in the United States and lots of different school systems have fundraising committees. That same fundraising committee just sends out this and basically says, hey, if you download the app or if you approach a couple of local businesses, we can get this very consistent revenue stream and we can participate in figuring out what goals we want to use this financing for. Um, and so it works actually really naturally with the way that schools were already needing to do that process. And that's very important because selling into school systems is horrible. Like I would never recommend it. Um, and that's not our intention. We are not selling to schools. We are just enabling schools to do what they already wanted to do. And instead of it being a cost to them, we're actually giving them back resources and revenue. Um, and we're letting them use all of the processes that they already had in place. And so it's interesting. So 75,000 schools, that's so many different institutions with so many different you know, stakeholders involved. I assume you're not having discussions with all 75,000 of them. No, absolutely. How, how does one roll this out in, in such a large you know, population? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, we're strictly having discussions with people who are at the curriculum development level. So they already have some sort of contract in place with, you know, the schools that are part of their network. And we are essentially digitalizing that curriculum. So they're already doing a rollout of this has to get to the schools, they're doing the negotiations. So we only come in as when they're told, great, it's ready for you instead of, you know, pick up these things in the mail or, you know, go to this web link. It's, you know, go to this web link or download this app. Um, so the only portion that we really have to do that's more customized than to us is we give them information on if you want to activate the fundraising opportunity, here's what that looks like for the steer committees. And it's on the security side where some of the schools have very explicit requirements on what um, data and security need to look like, completely understandable. And so we need to provide supplementary information for different districts in some cases that show why we're compliant. Got it. Got it. So let's talk about the human aspect of this within your own company. Um, when you launch, you're launching to just, you know, like you said, it was the hardest thing to do was to get those advertisers onto the platform. As you've done that, as you're getting more and more people onto the platform, you're probably hiring. You're probably having to deal with more management and more people. What has that experience been like for you? What are some of the lessons that you've, you've been able to take away? Yeah, that's been really challenging, I would say, you know, the entire company was formed and it's been done during the pandemic. It's so important to me that for Earth is a global solution to a global problem. You know, the world does not need another Silicon Valley social media company telling everyone what they need to buy. <laughs> like it's just not on the that. agenda. Yeah. And so, yeah, so it's very important to me to have employees that are located everywhere and are truly diverse in every sense of the word so that we understand what some of those local challenges are. And I was very avid about hiring for that originally. And that's an ambitious and difficult thing to do when you're trying to establish a new company culture, when people are working in completely different locations and they haven't gotten to meet in person at all. Um, and you're working across a lot of different time zones. And there are strengths to that in terms of diversity of thoughts, but there are serious operational challenges as well, for sure. Um, also with our mission-driven purpose that is pretty clear and poignant to especially a lot of younger people, 
in some cases we get flooded with applications, um, which makes it ironically a bit difficult on what is already a startup to make the time to really feel like we've gone through all of those applications effectively and we know that we're choosing the people who are the best choices. So an example of this, I posted for an internship opportunity at one point last year and we received um, 4,000 applications. Um, which is just impractical for us to process effectively and since too much time in review. Um, and so that was a little heartbreaking because I was so like, you know, um, I felt so wonderful that so many people wanted that opportunity, but obviously there's no possible way that we could process all of those. Um, but on the flip side, it also means that I think some people were more excited about the idea of what the company could do than the reality that it's still a startup. And we're a very aggressive one. We have a very audacious mission. We have a very clear um, intent to deliver on like all of these goals and truly create change. And that is not the same culture as a nonprofit. So I think that you know there is also the challenge where a lot of people are so compelled by how much donation that we're giving and how much good that we're doing that um, some of the people are, are maybe a little bit more expecting the internal culture of a nonprofit. And as much as I adore nonprofits, that's just not the sort of thing that we can do with what we need to deliver. And so that's also been a very interesting um, challenge to navigate in addition to what everyone else has experienced which is, you know, scarcity of technology, labor that's available, and, uh, you know, obviously overall health challenges have plagued the last year and a half. And so I anticipate that those things will continue to occur. And I always love to hear about other solutions from other impact-oriented leaders that they're doing to make those processes as frictionless as possible. <laughs> No, it's it's really interesting. You know, it seems like a lot of people have been gravitate, like I guess, gravitate toward you know a name like for Earth. And when you apply and you get those employees who you know have a greater sense of purpose within their work about what they're actually doing is actually making a difference. And it's like, you know, I've actually never heard that. Even though these organizations are, you know, I guess uh, they're for-profit companies, but they had a kind of philanthropic mission. I've never heard that. Yeah, you know, sometimes you may attract people that are probably assuming it's going to be this type of laid back culture. Whereas, you know, in a startup world, especially in the apps, it's so competitive. You know, there's there's no time to to waste, really. I'm curious, though, you know, for just thinking about developers and, you know, the apps that have been very successful, who have been built in a central location. Why did you go to the rest of the world to hire from the talent around the rest of the world? Yeah, so, you know, we have a very extensive roadmap and I personally do come from a technology background. Mm -hmm. You know, the doctoral work I, I have is in artificial intelligence and specific to disaster management. Um, and I've also done work in automation within the finance sector. And so there were a lot of algorithms and things that I knew I personally wanted to develop. And I also have a very strong priority for um, the customer obsession factor of doing constant um, case studies and user evaluations and lots of little pivots um, to improve those processes. And generally speaking, the only way to effectively do those is in-house with a team that can operate on a really agile methodology and respond to some of these small requests. And that is really difficult, especially with our platform, because 
we actually have three user interface systems. So we have one in the application, which is cross-platform. We have one on the web that's for customers and for institutional partners. And then we have a backend system with its own analytics. And so that's an extensive platform that we built and released initially for our global beta in about four months. Um, and so that's the sort of thing that, yeah, it's really helpful to have an in-house team for. Um, but there are other reasons why an outsourced team is really important. And we've actually made that transition over the last few months to say, you know, that's what we really need um, to move to the next step because of some of what I talked about with the schools and the securitization. Um, there's so much that we can do internally, but we're not quite big enough yet to say we want to have, you know, our own entire dedicated suite of professionals who do penetration testing and do some of the documentation of security procedures that we need to work with some of our enterprise partners and some of our school partners, but there are some amazing outsourced consultancy groups that really specialize in that do just a slam band job. Um, so, you know, I think it's important basically to have a blend in between those. And right now, especially, um, you know, the average tenure of a technical professional in the coding space, especially within app development is only about eight months at the moment, which makes it really critical that people have stellar documentation of their code and of what we're building um, and to have hopefully a little bit more resiliency by working with some of these outsource groups that maybe have other people that they can substitute when someone um, is no longer available. And for people listening to this, especially the entrepreneurs, the coders, the people who want to develop the next cool app, I think it would be helpful if you could explain to them what your lifestyle is like right now, how much work you are putting into this, and what challenges mentally come along with such a, an extensive roadmap, like you said. Yes. Um so I'm going to couch the answer to this by saying that when I was working in academia, um, it wasn't really academia. It was the intersection of academia and commercialization of technology into the uh, private sector. So I was running a design center where I spun off 50 technologies a year from ideation to implementation with different teams for each project, different industries for each project, and different sponsors for each project. Um, that is the only time that I have worked more <laughs> than this past year. Um, and, and quite literally during um, the time that I was running that design center, I was scheduling my meetings in 15 minute increments and I had to schedule bathroom breaks and sleep time. Um, so I would say for anyone that wants to go for a roadmap that is as comprehensive as ours, um, you better really have all of like partners in place that you've worked with previously that you trust and you really, really need to have utmost confidence in what you're building and how you're documenting it because it is a tremendous amount of work and it is genuinely difficult to do in this environment. Um, that being said, I also believe that many of the solutions that are necessary for us to have a regenerative economy require complexity. And I don't discourage people from shying away from the challenge, but you do need to know that it is expensive, it is time consuming, and it is difficult to communicate the need for it because not just now, but for pretty much the entire history of apps, the things that get funding and the things that get market understanding the fastest are very simple. Mm. 
Um, and this is particularly true, I think, in the funding space. And so generally speaking, I think it's actually much harder um, to really get adequate resources to commercialize something that is more detailed and that is more expert oriented in terms of what comes underneath those skirts. Mm. Um, if what you're doing is very simple, like Tinder, then yeah, you can probably, you know, get a team, put it together in two months, start getting some people involved, demonstrate appetite, raise way too much money and commercialize it pretty fast. Um, you may not be adding that much value to the process, but like you can certainly get out there and do that. And so, you know, as much as that may sound like criticism, there's certainly a place for that. There's plenty of places where that is also necessary and people may have no technological enablement at all. And if you haven't done work with an app before and you're thinking about doing something complex, do something simple like that first. It's a really, really good idea. You'll learn a lot about the process of working with the app store, which is its own set of drama and about working in the space and how to gain customer feedback. You'll have a much easier time raising capital and you can prove that track record out really pretty fast and then go back and do something complex. And, and for someone who's just, you know, entry level, that might be a lot, right? All, all of this jargon in this space, all this uh, this new information, all the things I need to do. It seems like a lot, but I think what some of the best entrepreneurs do is they surround themselves around others who have either been in their position before or is just there for, you know, shoulder to lean on when times are tough. What has worked for you and who are some of the mentors that you look to uh, or go to when you're in a time of need? Yeah. So shout back out to the Real Leaders Program. I love the CEO group that you have here. Um, it is a joy in my month to be able to go and share challenges and do sanity checks. Um, definitely as a founder, you know, there are many things where it's your responsibility to bear them. And, you know, that makes it very difficult to share that burden effectively within your team. And it's really, really wonderful to have a, a peer network for that. Um, I also was blessed to have some great advisors for the project since people really love the mission of what we're doing. And so I've been able to get some stellar advice um, from VCs and from, you know, philanthropists and activists in the space on how to deal with some of these complex challenges. And I definitely appreciate that. Um, I've also had a few consistent mentors and people in my life all the way back since grad school um, that have been able to give me some good feedback um, about my work and about, you know, how to overcome the various challenges. And you're right, that is so important because it is completely, you know, trite and overdone, but could not possibly be more true that it is really grit that determines success and that it is just more important to rebuild yourself and rebuild that resiliency um, than almost anything else that, that you're doing um, because, the things aren't logical. <laughs> you can put in really great work as a team for months and sometimes it's rewarded and sometimes it's not. And you just have to keep going until it is because it's like any game of statistics. It's like baseball. It's like cards. It's like D and D, you know, you have a hit chance basically on every activity and sometimes you lose and your job is to give yourself enough shots on target. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to put it. And, you know, someone had probably the other day, like, gosh, you know, where, where are all the people going that, you know, we see this rise in un unemployment, but where are they going? And, and you hear a lot of people are starting to create their own businesses, if you will. Uh, but what I think is really important, you know, if someone's listening to this podcast, they're probably trying to improve on the leadership. They're probably trying to get a new perspective. They're trying to learn about 
you know, who are the social entrepreneurs out there that are really, you know, taking on some of the world's greatest challenges and, and how can I learn at least one thing from them? What I think this show does a good job of is we talk about what actually is going on and the, the, the mental st- like stress that's put on an entrepreneur and how real that is. Tell us about a time when you wanted to quit. Yeah. Um, so, hmm. Definitely at one point when we were doing one of the pivots, and this is usually tends to be one of the trigger points, right? Mm. I had worked up, you know, several great arrangements with people that really made sense and were mutual win-wins. And, you know, I had good people working on good things. And then we just went through a period of weeks where nothing moved forward and so many things moved backwards and just everyone in the process, I, you know, I felt like let me down, including myself. Right. And Mm -hmm. so that was tremendously discouraging. And, you know, it was particularly frustrating because there were people that also, you know, the startup scene is, is very difficult because in normal companies, there's an implication that you have a job and you get directed on what to do. And that hopefully if you're really great at your job and you're invested and you want to be fulfilled, you do something that adds value on top of that to the company. But in startups, you know, in a lot of cases, it's really everyone is responsible for truly creating value. There is no inherent value that we don't add. And not everyone understands that, especially if it's their first time out of the box. And so during a period that was already very frustrating, where I felt like we needed to make a lot of changes, I also had people who turned around and wanted to say, you know, um, this is frustrating for me. What are you going to do about my situation? And really started wanting to um, air a lot of their frustrations on the company. And I was completely you know, sympathetic in terms of how I felt about that, but it's just not something that is practical. Like it just doesn't work that way. We're not the same thing um, as, um, you know, a, an established entity as academia that I used to work for, for instance, like it's just not that sort of working environment. And, um, you know, everything that happens is already very, very difficult on a week to week basis in a startup. And so it's particularly frustrating then when there are things that you agree with on a, you want so badly to fix this problem, but there's truly nothing that you can do mm-hmm. until there's a bigger external change and you don't necessarily have power over that external change. And you really need everybody pulling in the same direction. And, you know, that, that job is being made more difficult. Um, so it's really at that point where, you know, you start to say, does this make sense? You know, am, am I doing the right thing by motivating people to continue pushing towards this goal? Or, you know, is this something where we need to, to, you know, call it and I need to encourage people to say, you need to do things that are right for you. Um, And maybe that's too verbose of an answer to this sort of question, but I feel that sort of thing very acutely as an impact um, CEO, but the realities of doing a startup are you're always going to have sometimes like that. And if people are not emotionally prepared for it, then it's that feeling that, you know, you may have, have not been able to do and protect your people that like, I think hurts the most. Um, 
and sometimes you just can't. And, you know, the choice is basically to let that consume you or, or to pick up and, and move on and continue producing that value that you know you can do downstream. And that's part of why I say, like, you know, I think it's so important at this point when there are so many people in the labor force that are inclined to quit their normal study job and go say, like, I want to do a startup that, like, there really, really needs to be a good way to effectively really ask them to pause during that interview process and say, do you understand what this means? Do you mm. understand that level of uncertainty? Because a founder has to live with that every day, mm. but there are problems that they cannot fix. Mm -hmm. and, and understanding why you want to do that. It's like, you know, I, I speak with entrepreneurs who want to join and, and they say, you know, I want to scale. And then you ask them why you want to scale. And it's almost as if they've never thought about it before. From what I'm hearing from you is that as you were growing, you know, you ran into more like people problems and really like you've learned a lot about how to be, like you said, really upfront about what you're getting yourself into. This is not a, a nonprofit culture. We are going to be working toward this end goal day by day and it's not going to be easy. I guess just to bring this home, what is your definition of a real leader? Yeah, you know, it's a really good question. I believe that real leaders see a better future and they work to manifest it. You know, fate is not set. And I know that we say that we believe that, but when it comes to us as an investment culture and as a startup culture, we actually really kind of don't walk that talk. What we tend to want to put money into and time into is the notion that this is going to happen and you want to be the person that gets there first. And as an impact CEO, I don't see that to be true. I see that it's very clear that there are people throughout history and in every group of leaders that sees the different ways that something could end and put through the effort to pull everyone to the better path. And that really is necessary because it's very rarely the path that they're going to default to for the same reason that it's more difficult to communicate a complicated idea than a simple one. The idea of something being better, that is simple, but the reality of making something better is usually more complex because of the exact same reason of why ecology is complex and why the environment is not a one-stage spectrum of, well, we just want less carbon. We need a certain amount of carbon. We need a balance. We need a balance of you know, things in our atmosphere. We need a balance of things in our water and we need a balance of approach to business. And that requires a lot of thought and a lot of communication. And so the challenge is really to pull against the easy path in favor of the greater value. And, and we live in a time where we got out of balance with shareholder primacy and kind of this notion of winner take all. And I think, you know, you're doing, um, you know, a service for the world by tackling at least even attempting to pursue you know a major obstacle like this so gold i appreciate you coming on the show today thank you so much for sharing your story for gold dark hood i'm kevin edwards asking you to go out there see a better future and work to manifest it and never forget folks to always keep it real thank you gold
And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a 100 dollar a year subscription hit the link in the show notes enter in coupon code podcast 20 to receive access to all of real leaders to get you to the next level thanks for listening to this episode and always keep it real